Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Tonight we begin a new sermon series in the letter of James. The sermon series is entitled Integration. Uh, Integration means very simply to connect or bond different concepts one to another. Integration is what they teach you always if you go to see a psychoanalyst. Your problem is that you're not integrated. There's something within you that is not connecting but really ought to if you're to be a healthy individual. Many people in this room, you've been afflicted by someone who lacks integration. You know somebody in your life, for example, who is absolutely brilliant in terms of thinking, but not so brilliant when it comes to feeling. You know somebody who argues exceptionally well. They're ferociously good at it, but they don't listen to anything ever. Uh, You know people that are incredibly generous and would give to anybody that they could, but they don't actually know how to save anything, and they're very incautious. Or you know somebody who is exceptionally strong, very determined, they're very resolute, and yet they're not tender when they need to be. And many of us know, uh, nay, when we look in the mirror, we see people who claim to believe certain things, about ourselves and about God and about other people and about the world, and yet we act out of accord with those beliefs all the time. And the epistle of James is written to people in order that they might be integrated, that their confession, that is what they say they believe, would actually be connected to how they function in the day-to-day world. And so the letter of James is all about integration. It's about how real faith connects with real life and how real faith shapes how we engage with matters of justice and economics and speech and humility and sin and confession, all of it. So I have two goals for this sermon, uh, and uh, they are uh, these. To introduce the book and give you a little bit of background so you have a good sense of it, and also to talk about trials, and maybe offer all of us a new way of conceptualizing trials. But I have to give you a little background because we're dealing here with what's called a high-context document, meaning uh, that the Bible was written in a particular time and in a particular place using a particular language that has a very specific background to it, a Jewish background. Uh, And so some of these concepts might be new to you, especially if you're new to kind of religious involvement. So I have to give you a few ways to understand the letter. And the first is you have to understand the genre of it. Genre means the type of literature that this is. Um, This reading that we had, the first reading, comes from a letter. The James has written a letter. And a letter, of course, differs from other forms of literature. It's not a biography, and it's not a list of statistics. It's not a list of laws or legal material. It's not a drama. It's a letter, meaning it's, it's written to a very specific crowd uh, with specific ideas for their specific crises. And what's more than that, James has written a unique kind of letter. It's not just unique because it's a letter. It's unique because there's no other letter in the New Testament like the letter of James. 
because other New Testament letters uh, involve linear, very often clear argumentation with supporting points for that argumentation. When you read the Apostle Paul, he's got something on his mind and you know what it is. James, though, didn't grow up in Germany like St. Paul. Just kidding. Like James isn't as left-brained. He's more right-brained. He is not linear. He jumps around a little bit from topic to topic. And so if I were to give you an illustration, especially if you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, the letter of James is like the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The Old Testament book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings that is supposed to key you in to what a moral life looks like. Uh, James is not dissimilar to the book of Proverbs in that way. So that's a little bit about the genre. Now let's get into the controversy just for a sec. Uh, James' uh, focus was considered worrisome by people in the first centuries of the church. James' focus on uh, Christian works seems to contradict other parts of the New Testament that says that we are saved by faith in Christ without works, without contribution. I actually think that's a very lazy reading of James. I don't think it, that, that reading understands James at all. But for this reason, because of James' emphasis on works, some early Christian leaders were uncomfortable with including James uh, and his letter in the New Testament canon. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, is often lambasted uh, for labeling James's letter an epistle of straw, meaning it lacked weight, namely it lacked the gospel. Martin Luther believed that the gospel was largely absent uh, from the epistle of James. What's of course challenging about Luther's critique is that it is quite true. There is not a lot of gospel in James. If you are interested in uh, the uh, beautiful and redeeming death and resurrection of Jesus and all of the benefits that are showered upon us because of that death and resurrection, James doesn't have a lot of that data expressing itself within his book. Instead, what James is doing is showing us how that same gospel can influence every aspect of life. So while he doesn't focus on the gospel per se, he does focus upon a gospel-infused existence. And so when you read the epistle of James, in light of the rest of the New Testament material, it makes perfect sense. It actually has a lot to teach us about integration. And so that's something about the genre and the controversy. And I want to now uh, pry open the text a little bit because we understand something more about the genre here. Um, James, unsurprisingly, begins his letter in a fairly letterish way. He identifies both author and audience. This is verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Uh, so the author identifies himself as James. Who is James? Which James are we referring to here? You may know that there are several Marys in the New Testament, sometimes hard to keep track of them. It's not dissimilar with James. There's quite a few of those, too. Uh, we don't actually know which James this was, but church tradition, history, and some textual evidence lead most people uh, who believe in the inspiration of Scripture, most people to believe that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, another son of Mary, who became eventually the Bishop of Jerusalem, who was nicknamed Camel Knees, because his knees became so deformed after his many hours of prayer every day. He was actually martyred in AD 62. And so if that James wrote this epistle, and I think that's very likely, it means that this is one of the first 
letters that we have in the New Testament, first letters penned in the New Testament. I, I think it's very likely that it's James, the half-brother of Jesus. What's fascinating about that, of course, is that, is that James, along with his siblings, did not believe in Jesus early on in his ministry. In Mark chapter 3, his family believed that Jesus at some point early in his ministry was crazy and wanted to take him away safely. That is, here, buddy, stay in this rubber room until you calm down. Um, and so there was, there was a, a, a time in which uh, James, it seems, if he was among that crew that day, was not so much a supporter of his brother's public life, but there was a change of heart at some point, and he became a very devout believer in his brother. Um, so that is the author, most likely. And then he, he talks about his audience in kind of an enigmatic way. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What on earth does that mean? What's confusing, because there were 12 tribes in Israel. You may know that, that Israel as a nation was constituted of 12 tribes. Here's the problem, though, with referring to them or writing a letter to them. Ten of them were utterly destroyed in 722 B.C. So 12 minus 10 is 2. And so there's only two tribes left in Jesus' day and in James' day. Only two left. So he seems to be using the 12 tribes language rather metaphorically, probably referring, of course, to the new 12 tribes, uh, that is, the new Israel, that is, those who have coagulated themselves around Jesus by faith, Christians, in other words. And he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The older word is the diaspora. It's a very familiar and a bitter word for most Jews, a very bitter word, because they knew how frequently their existence as a nation was marred by dispersion. What's a dispersion? It's when you are kicked out of your homeland and sent to places all over the known world. And this is what happens to Israel numerous times. But the two big dispersions were in 722, when Assyria comes and destroys the 12 tribes of the north, scattering Jews all over the Mediterranean world. And the next time it was in 586, when Babylon comes and does the same thing. Scatters Jews all over the world to the point where uh, there were Jewish communities in Iraq, in Rome, in all sorts of places uh, in Jesus' day. And so he is writing to people who are experiencing the pain of dispersion, but this time it's not Israelites only necessarily who are afflicted by this dispersion. It is New Testament believers in Jesus who are experiencing something awful. It might be persecution, though that's pretty early on in the game, but it could have been. Uh, and uh, it could have been other problems, but they are dispersed in some sense. And I want you to think just for a moment about the pain of dispersion. Some of you have experienced this quite physically, others existentially, but let's talk about the pain of dispersion for just a minute, the great diaspora that is our existence, where everything familiar for these people, especially for the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament, everything familiar in a dispersion is completely taken away. Everything that you know, Everything that you expect, everywhere that you shop, where you go to school, what language you speak, the houses that you're used to, you know where the palace is, you know where the religious institutions are. They've all been burned down and taken away. And now you've been put in handcuffs and dragged away, walking the whole way. And some of your children die on the, on, on the way to the, in this new journey uh, to some distant country that's 700 miles away. And there, you're put into slavery, you're made to de defy your own god, you're made to eat uh, pagan foods, engage in pagan rituals, and they're, they're seeking to kind of breed you out of existence and to teach you out of existence so that you can completely assimilate with the new culture. That's what it means to be part of the diaspora. 
And many of us in this room have experienced, perhaps at a lower level, of course, uh, a dispersion. Because maybe sometime in your life your spouse left you. Or maybe you left them and now you're living in some awful apartment uh, that smells like bleach uh, and you only see your kids you know once a week and your money is halved because now you're giving away alimony and child support and you're absolutely bereft because half your friends won't talk to you that's a bit of a diaspora and if you uh, have lost your job recently uh, due to uh, some sort of minimization of the company and you are now bereft of work and you're looking for work filling out endless amounts of applications and getting maybe one call for every 10 applications you send out, well, that's a diaspora of sorts. And if you started college recently, but you're finding that it's really not working for you because everything familiar about your former life is gone and now you're surrounded by people that you just don't gel with and you have um, parents that are sort of disappointed that you're not majoring in Spanish and uh, or whatever it is or engineering uh, or you, your circle of friends isn't so friendly and you've discovered that the hard way well that's a diaspora of sorts and so you are far from your constellations of consolation well all I want to say to you is the New Testament understands that the Christian posture in this world is one of diaspora is one of dispersion because St. Paul writes in the New Testament that we are aliens in this world. We don't belong. We're not at home. Anybody east of Eden doesn't belong to Eden right now and you can't get back home and it feels like you're out of sorts with yourself and with your companions. And so tonight, if your heart feels homeless and it very well might, well, you've got a friend. Uh, you've got a friend in James because he's writing to you because you're part of the 12 tribes in the midst of dispersion. And so uh, I, I just wanted to underscore all of those uh, background-oriented points to give you a sense of where we are and then uh, where James is headed. And he's headed immediately, uh, without brakes on his car, immediately into difficult terrain. Uh, he talks about trials right away. Trials. James begins his letter with a thud with trials, with something that is neither sweet nor subtle. He doesn't offer what the other New Testament authors offer at the beginning of their letters. He doesn't give you these lofty, lovely greetings and praising the audience. I've heard about your faith, and I'm very impressed with the fact that you, 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 you set up all sorts of philanthropic organizations in Rome, and, and lots of people are benefiting from you, and, and you're being nicer to old women and kinder to children. Nothing. Nothing like that at all. Instead, he writes these words, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you, my brothers, meet trials of various kinds. Why begin with trials? Well, the answer is obvious if you understand the dispersion. Because he's squaring with people who are in the midst of an onslaught of trials. Because when you're dispersed, you're not dealing with one trial. You're dealing with, you know, 30 trials all at the same time. Right? Now, that, by the way, that's how real theology works. Real theology is not a head trip that is divorced from your own experience. Real theology is not meant for debate and speculation. I say that to all the Bible majors in the room. Let's include the philosophers, too, uh, and maybe everybody else. Um, real theology lands in your life. Martin Luther famously once said, you don't need the gospel for speculation. You need it for life and breath. You need it just to survive, because life is that brutal. It is not meant for endless speculation. It's meant for displacement. It's meant for people whose lives are destroyed. And so he begins with trials, because that's where his people are. So he begins with trials, and what is a trial? Of course, a trial is a difficulty that you didn't engineer. Lots of self-sabotage going on in, the, in, in life, but a trial isn't among the elements of self-sabotage. 
uh, a, a trial is something that is not your fault. You didn't will it. You didn't choose it. But it lands in your life nevertheless. And what James is wanting to do regarding these trials that his audience is experiencing, and by proxy we're experiencing, is to give us some new prescription, le prescription lenses so that we can understand trials a little differently. So he says something that I would never say, at least instinctively, I would never say. Count it all joy when your life is miserable. Count it all joy when you, the dispersed crowd, is facing this trial or that trial. Trials and joy, he unites them together. Sounds like trying to combine oil and water or the Pittsburgh Pirates and success. Something to that effect. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, count it all joy when God blesses you, when God opens doors for you, when God crowns you with beauty instead of ashes, count it all joy. Uh, but I find, uh, friends, that we're not even good at that. Counting it all joy when things are going really well. We're really bad at that. Because even when things are going really well, especially if we're slightly critically minded, we'll find something to complain about in the midst of all the wellness. Something is defective, we're quite sure of it. I have evidence of this, by the way. Uh, it's Western Pennsylvania, and there's weather outside. Now, here's what I mean. Western Pennsylvanians are infamous for hating every form of weather. <laughs> and always being perpetually unhappy, regardless of what the weather is. So let's say it is a 75 degree day. It is sunny. There are just a few clouds in the sky. Here's what a Pennsylvanian would say. It's supposed to rain tomorrow. <laughs> I can already feel it's getting humid. The mosquitoes are terrible today, aren't they? You know, you can get sunburn even when there's light cloud cover, you know? Yeah, it's nice today, but it'll be over soon. Falls on the way. Then seven months of Narnian winter. Um, we can't even enjoy things that are enjoyable. We don't delight in things that are delightful. And here James comes along and says, hey, when you're facing some of the gravest difficulties of your life, count it all joy, brothers. He takes the agonizing moments of our lives in a dispersion, and he says, yes, there's some bad luck going around, some gray clouds, find delight in this moment. Now, if James stopped here, which he doesn't, that is just delight in your suffering, he would be a disturbed sadist, right? Just enjoy agony. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he offers some reasoning. He keeps going. This is what he writes. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, see, what James is doing, and by the way, he's a religious genius. He sees into the deep tissue of the matter. He's not a peripheral thinker. He says, no, 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 when you inherit a crisis in your life that you did not create and you do not want, you could fill your heart with vinegar and resentment and make yourself and everyone else around you miserable. Or you could be like perpetually stuck in sadness and depression, like Miss Havisham in Great Expectations, where when her uh, fiance ran out on her, she in her wedding gown stays in her wedding gown for 40 more years, stuck in time. He says, no, wear a new prescription. See this differently. Wear these glasses and see trials within a hundred mile perspective, not a six foot perspective. 
we may begin to see, urges James, that trials are not useless, nor meaningless, nor the cause of needless cynicism. They can become the veritable instrumentality of our own deliverance. He says this kind of testing, which is a word that means refinement, kind of when you turn up the heat on silver or gold in order to purify it. This testing isn't without results. It produces something. Namely, what does he say it produces? Steadfastness. Sturdy footing, where you're not blown away by the wind, where you're not crumpling under any sort of pressure, sturdiness, resilience, resoluteness. Let me ask you something, a rhetorical question, but uh, think about it in your own heart. What makes you crumple? What knocks you down with one punch? Is it financial instability? Is it being underappreciated and overlooked? Is it not being liked? Is it conflict? Is it sudden illness? Well, James is promissory here. He is saying to you, no, 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 trials can do something for you that nothing else can do. Trials over a lifetime can make you a different sort of being. They can make you somebody who is far more resilient than you think you could ever be and far braver than you could ever imagine yourself being. Uh, it can produce steadfastness and give you thicker skin. Um, speaking of thicker skin, one of my favorite uh, priests, and this is a very public thing, but years ago, uh, he faced the greatest challenge of his whole life when his wife was cheating on him with a member of the parish. And in front of everybody, and everybody knew it, she would bring him up to communion. So he invited me to come join him at the service for emotional support. And he was so out of it that he, and just devastated that he'd be like, whatever, just give them communion. But I'm kind of, I mean, I'm not a jerk, but you know. And I skipped her. I did. I, I said, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all iniquity. But then I bypassed her, right? So he wasn't going to excommunicate her, I was. And, but this utterly embarrassed him and devastated him that his wife would do this. And years later, he's written about it in the most beautiful way. He said, look, would I ever have wanted to go through that? My, no. Would I ever want to go through anything similar? No. Anything of the same degree or gravity of pain? No. He said, however, however, that event gave me spiritual calluses. And I said, aren't calluses bad? He said, not in this situation. I used to be a person that would be devastated by any amount of criticism, any pushback, anybody just being unpleasant to me. And now I can pretty much take it all. Right? I have a resilience that would never have been mine had that not occurred to me. And, and he has grown to be one of the most profoundly mature and emotionally sophisticated people I've ever met in my whole life because of this horrific event that took place. It gave him thick skin, made him steadfast, that horrific testing. Um, and the goal, notice the goal, though, isn't just steadfastness, that's part of it, but steadfastness is kind of a step to something else. He says that, right? That the steadfastness would have a full effect, it would become really robust, that you might be perfect, right? Lacking in nothing. Now, perfection here means something like completeness, being well-rounded. So trials exist not just to make you tougher, but to also round you out as a person. 
Remember, the Shema, the Hebrew prayer, that you are to love the Lord your God, you know it, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, strength, yeah? Well, what fallenness does is it usually makes you a swollen in one area, like your brain, and shrunken in some other area. So you have hysterias that are running wild and other aspects of you that are not operative. What this means is that you can be completely and holistically God's own and freed up in every way to be the kind of person that God would have you be. Not strong in an arrogant way, but strong in God, fulfilled in God, mature in God, complete in God. And I've found in my own bitter experiences in life, the only reason that I have the health that I do now is because life has forced me to face into things that I would rather run away from and depend on a source, namely God, that I sometimes eschew because it's a real bummer and a real bust to the ego whenever you have to depend upon somebody who isn't yourself. Uh, but J.I. Packer, the great Anglican theologian, puts it this way. God uses affliction as a chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. Well, there is somebody in Christian history who really understood this to a great degree, and his name is C.S. Lewis. He was, of course, the author of numerous books, including one about his own conversion called Surprised by Joy. Well, very late in his life, he wrote another book entitled A Grief Observed, and it was written about the death of his wife, the poet and authoress uh, Joy Davidman. Yes, named Joy. Well, after Joy died, Lewis fell into a very bleak depression, and he expresses that depression in this book. And in this book, at one low point, he likens God to a vivisectionist. That is, to a lab tech who rips rats apart alive. He essentially says to God, you slice into us, don't you? just to see what makes us twitch. It isn't that I'm close to disbelieving in you. It's that I'm believing new things about you that scare me, about what you might really be like. But then at the end of the book, Lewis comes to a deeper place, a wider place. And this is the end of the book. Lewis writes, As it turns out, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He already knew that already. It was I who didn't know. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize it was to knock it down. But now when I lay my questions before God, I still get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It is not a locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though God was shaking his head, not in refusal, but in waving my question like, peace, my beloved child, you don't yet understand. And that's where Lewis ended up. And eventually it led him back to a place of joy. Lewis discovered not a lack of pain, but a companion emotion to that pain. He eventually found a joy in the fact that we are held in the hands of one who is not cruel, but whose hands are littered with scar tissue. We are held in our suffering by a suffering God in Christ. So let me land this for us, and then I'm done. Trials. Trials are marching toward us. They are marching toward us because we live within a hazardous dispersion diaspora. 
So whether it's a third miscarriage or bulimia, anorexia, suicidality, being a social misfit, our arguments with our elders, a pancreatic cancer, a mentally ill parent, or penetrating loneliness that makes us cry out in despair, trials are inevitable. That's why James writes, when you meet these trials, not if you do. But when we do, brothers and sisters, when we do, James offers us a new way of seeing. He says, when you see a trial, see more than a trial. Trials come with companioned goods because of God. So in closing, I want to ask and then answer some pastoral questions. First, this may seem obvious, but it doesn't feel instinctively obvious. Does a trial that we receive in life mean that God is paying us back for something that we've done amiss or done wrong? Absolutely not. Of course, we can self-sabotage. That's another issue. But trials come to those who are walking in the right way and walking in the wrong way. That's why the book of Proverbs says, functionally, it doesn't actually say this in a verse, but functionally, don't be an idiot because your life is going to be horrible, right? That's what it says. But then there's the book of Job that says sometimes you're doing the right thing and you get walloped anyway. So asked and answered. Second question, is joy the only appropriate emotion in a trial? That is, if we feel anything besides joy during a trial, are we being unfaithful wretches? Well, of course not. My evidence is Jesus himself. Jesus cries at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus sweats blood at Gethsemane, asking for a cup to be taken away. And Jesus cries about forsakenness on the cross. James' point is not that pain will go away whenever we're experiencing a trial, but that joy can conjoin itself as a companion emotion to our pain. Because when we're in pain, we can at least begin to have the expectation that nothing is outside God's redemption. Nothing that I'm experiencing will destroy me ultimately because it's God who's in control. God has got me through before. God will get me through now. So pain can be conjoined with joy. Another question. Will we always see during a trial or afterward how God was at work to make us more complete? Uh, often, but not always. God's work is very often like the small seeds of the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about, meaning God's work is, at the outset, sometimes imperceptible by us. But the good news is that our perception of God and the self and God's changing of the self is not the measure of God's actual changing of the self, meaning we perceive very, very little. And so God is at work all the time in you without you noticing. Very often other people can see it, but you can't. God's work, when it can be seen, by the way, is almost always seen in the rearview mirror of life. Sometimes regarding a trial, you have to trust in the promise of God, expect uh, that he will work, and simply then look back after the fact, realizing that he in the past has worked, and you see the deliverance after the fact. Next question. Where do we find comfort here and now in the midst of our trials? Well, we do, of course, in the gospel of Christ's deliverance, but we also find that in each other. Remember, James here writes to a plural audience. He says, brothers, instead of brother, plural, referring to siblings who are in Christ. James also writes when you face trials, and you is plural, y'all or yins. 
you. He writes to an audience who is enduring something together rather than apart. By the way, if your version of Christianity teaches an individualistic stoicism, that you have all you need within your veritable person to muscle through something, um, you are not really believing in Christianity. It is something very different. You don't have what you need to survive. I hope you hear me loud and clear. You do not, in your own individual person, have what you need to survive. That is a maya, an illusion. It is not true. Instead, we have each other to survive because you have things I don't have, insights I don't have, wisdom I don't have, and I need those things from you in order to get through. And maybe you need a few things from me. And so he writes to an, to an audience of uh, yous, of brothers. And, and in, in addition to that, as we live together as brothers and sisters during life's trials, friends, I encourage you to use scripture with care and pastoral sensitivity the word of count it all joy is entirely true, but it is likely not fitting two minutes after a car crash. Just as the verse God disciplines those whom he loves is probably not best spoken after an Alzheimer's diagnosis. As a community, we speak the word of God in season. There is a timeliness that we must consider when dealing with these passages in scripture. That doesn't mean never, it just means uh, use your spirit-led wisdom um, so James, friends, is inviting us to take a more sophisticated view, to see God's opportunism in our trials, that he will use them to rewire them and make us complete rather than just make us damaged. Where did James learn this original insight, count it all joy, when you face these trials? He learned it from his older half-brother. He learned it from Jesus. Or, to quote the book of Hebrews, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It was present in Jesus. It can be present for us. Friends, heaven is occupied by a Messiah who bled out, but who has subsequently stopped bleeding because his joy came. His joy came, and yours will too. Someday, after this trial is complete, I hope we can see how God has used it to bring us to a wider place. And I hope that sight can begin right now for every single one of us. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your